welcome to Southbridge. If this is your home church, welcome. Welcome home. And if you're a guest, if this is your first time here or you've been checking out Southbridge for a while, we hope that you feel welcome. We hope that you know that you're, you have a place here. You're welcome to, to be here and be a part of this church. And you probably caught by now that what we want to do is make a big deal about Jesus. He is our Savior and our champion. And so the songs that we sing, we sing for him and to him. And when we gather in his name, we open up his, his words so that we may be encouraged and edified, equipped, maybe challenged or admonished so that we would live in light of what we've come to understand in him. And uh, you are welcome to be a part of this church. This morning is a special morning because we're gathered. <laughs> That's it. And this morning we're continuing our series called Movement. It's really the study of the book of Acts. So you can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 3. We have the privilege this morning of opening God's Word, and last week our lead pastor uh, walked us through the first several verses of Acts chapter 3, and we know that a key verse in this book is Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that Jesus gives us promises to his disciples, and really a promise for whoever will follow him in time, that the Holy Spirit will come and give power so that they can be witnesses, to witness, to, to testify to Christ. And so God's plan now is to work through people that believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior to redeem people beyond themselves. And Jesus tells his followers, these Galileans, that they're going to be his witnesses to Judea and Samaria and basically the whole earth. And somehow in time, in 1984, I came to know Christ when I was seven. And it's still happening. I don't know if you knew this or not, but people are still coming to know Christ, even in our city. Even in our church, this week one of my good friends was visiting with one of our local uh, partners, one of our strategic partners, Crosspoint, and my friend accepted Christ in his, his counseling session. It's still happening. Another one of my friends has been praying for his neighbor. It's, one of, it's basically his one. There's one person that he wants to see come to know Christ, and he's invited him to church several times. It's never happened. And that neighbor this week accepted Christ. It's happening. It's really happening. And anyone here that knows Christ... It, kept happening by the faithfulness of these apostles and then the, all the followers of Jesus and then the thousands that said yes when we studied Acts chapter 2, all those people kept sharing and then again and again and again. It's still happening and that's the mission. And it will keep happening until the last person that Christ has decreed which ought to be in his family will be in his family. That's when we'll rest. <laughs> right now we've got a lot of work to do. And God's doing a work in our hearts, I believe, as a church family to care more and more about the place in which we live. I'm going to pray this morning as we open up God's word in Acts chapter 3, and just as our worship pastors prayed that God would be glorified. And I also want to pray for other churches that are gathering this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this morning, thank you. You brought us here. You've given us safety to be here in this place, a place that's for entertainment, a place that shares stories over and over again. And Lord, we want to share a story in this place as well, and it's the story of your son, Jesus Christ, the true story. And we want to testify to his greatness in our lives amongst one another. And we want to look in your word. And Lord, we bring nothing to the table um, but ourselves. And ask God that you would do what you do. And that's change our lives for the sake of others. Lord, I pray for other churches that are gathering this morning that you would allow your word to go forth from them. That the gospel would be clearly shared and spoken and lived. And that it would be received for the sake of the people in our city and for your glory alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 11 today. 
If you remember last week, um, we were looking through Acts chapter 3, and Peter and John, these two followers of Jesus, are making their way to the temple uh, during the prayer hour. And as they do, they come across a man who had been born with the inability to, to walk. And so he was a beggar, and every day he'd be placed at this gate in this temple. And on this special day, on a Lord's appointed day, on this divine day, this man calls out to Peter and John and asks for alms, asks for help. And Peter says this unbelievable thing. He says, look at us. In the text says, they, made, uh, they met eyes. They looked at each other. And Peter says, I don't have silver or gold or anything to give you. But what I do have, and that's Christ. And he has faith in Christ. I give to you. So out of Peter's faith, he gives this command in Jesus' name that the guy ought to walk. And the guy does. And then this man clings to Peter and John. And now they're making their way through the temple, but it's kind of catching other people's eyes because they've known this guy to be a beggar for so long. And what we're going to see here, I believe, in the continuation of this story, it's very much like Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came and then Peter preached. So there's a miracle and then the gospel. We see a miracle here and I think the gospel again. And for those that are in need, and we all are, I think this is a great passage to teach us how to share our faith. It's really a how-to passage. It's an example, a demonstration. It's a narrative that can give us courage to know how to share our faith. Last year, we, for our Renewable Church membership, yearly we're going to be asking people to renew if they want to be a member of this church. And we asked a question about people sharing their faith. And the leadership, ourselves included, takes the test, takes this test of ourselves. It's not to prove anything to anybody else, but just for our own benefit individually. And we shared as a church family that we have insecurity when it comes time to sharing our faith with somebody. As a church, more of us feel insecure than secure about sharing our faith. So that causes alarm especially for leadership that's held accountable by God to equip the believers for works of service. And our greatest service, isn't it, to share Christ? So our foundations class that starts next week, sharing our faith is one of the things that we talk about. Now, it does seem that some personalities and some wearings are more prone to be free with this, that have a fearlessness about them, and that's probably true. But everyone's been given the task. Everyone's been given the mission to share our faith. And I think that this passage shows us, gives us a glimpse on how to do that. Let's walk through it together. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Now being mindful of last week's point, Peter and John are walking through the temple. They are noticing the needs of others, which was the first point. And they're moved to make a difference, which is their high calling, and it's the same calling we have of, for those that are in Christ. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, verse 11, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Your translation might say porch or portico. This is um, a many-pillared, uh, three-aisled um, hallway, in a sense, or a big room that runs alongside the court of the Gentiles. Today, you might see churches call themselves Solomon's Porch. It's believed that believers would rent this place out, even during this time, until um, there was much persecution. When Peter saw this, when he saw the crowd, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness, your translation might say piety, we could use the word, or by our own religiousness, we had made this man walk? Stop. Peter discerns that the healing here isn't the end. And here's the truth about the healing. It's amazing. And it was God appointed. And this is the same truth that God appoints us to take care of the poor, to take care of the widow and the orphan. Jesus makes big claims about, hey, when you do this for these people, you're doing it for me. Jesus makes a big deal about these things, about benevolence. But here's the deal with this man who is healed. He's going to die again. Not again, but he's going to die. He's going to, to perish. 
And everyone that Jesus healed did perish in time. And so it seems that God's style is often a healing or a miracle or a touch or a talk so that, in the end, others might come to know him. That's the point. There's a great movement today in Christendom that we're supposed to amplify the taking care of the poor. And that's true in Scripture. You might have heard this phrase before, you know, um, share the gospel but use words when necessary. Well, let me tell you this. The words are necessary. The words are necessary. And we're going to see that from this text. And I think Peter understands that there's a moment here, but it's a divine moment. It's a divine moment because he introduces people to Christ. And subsequently, for us and forevermore, everyone who reads this narrative has some insight about how to share the gospel. See, he's noticing a need here now. Just last week's points are the same for this week, if you like to write down points. We need to revisit them. He's noticing a need and he wants to make a difference, and here's the need. They all have the same need the whole crowd does, and it's the same need that Peter had and that you and I have, and that's that we need Christ, and we need to repent from our way and turn to the way of Christ. And so Peter begins by saying, why are you surprised? Do you think that we did this on our own? I know how to fish. That's Peter, not Jason. I don't like touching worms. <laughs> I guess you could use other lures. So Peter says, this isn't from us. This didn't happen because we're so religious or we're so good at church or because we have all the prophets hidden in our heart. No. So then he wants to give an explanation of the miracle, but before really doing that, he amplifies Christ. So look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is language that the hearers, the crowd, would have really been sensitive to. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, and you handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that our murder be released to you. That was Barabbas, if you remember the story. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. In these three verses, Peter's explanation of the miracle healing is really the story of the gospel. He hasn't really told anyone how the healing happened yet. And yet we could just park at these three verses. These, I think, are the blueprint or an idea or an encouragement on how to share our faith. Basically, Peter in intertwines the stories of Jesus, the crowd, and the disciples in three verses. Did you catch it? Let's do some Bible study together. Look at Acts 3, 13 through 15, and we'll do it several times here. The truth is this, that sharing the gospel is at least about three people. So when you have a friend or a stranger that you're encountering, and you have a heart for them because you notice their need, and you want to make a difference in this world, you recognize that they have the same need that you do. And regardless of their circumstance, they need Christ just as you do. And so Peter does an amazing thing here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe. He basically first tells them Jesus' story. And when you share the gospel of a friend, that's the first thing you're doing is you're sharing them the story of Jesus. Our lead pastor is very gifted in this and a model for me in this. He asked people questions, and my friend Mike said the same thing this morning. He asked a friend last night, what are you going to do with Jesus? We'll come back to that in a minute. So let's look at the text. We're viewing through these three verses. What does Peter say about Jesus? Start in verse 13 again. He says that God glorified him. He says that Jesus is the servant. And that was not the view the crowd would have of a, of a Messiah, ever, a servant. That God, he's glorified, that he's a servant. 
in verse 14, 14 that he's the holy and righteous one, perfect and set apart, never failing, never lied, never sinned. And that he's the author of life. Verse 15, your translation might say prince of life. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is the creator. He didn't exist only at his birth. He always existed because he himself is God. When he was born, he put on flesh and became in the appearance of a man and came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve. And then Peter says something that would have blown them away. He says that God raised him. The Father raised him. So you have these significant statements about Jesus. And when you share the gospel with somebody, you're telling them who Jesus is. And by telling him who he is, you're always including what he did. If he was raised, that means he died. And that transitions Peter's statements about the crowd. Listen to what he says to the crowd. Think about saying such things today. 13 through 15 again. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our Father, has glorified his servant Jesus. What did they do? Here's your story, crowd, Peter says. You handed him over to be killed. This is getting uncomfortable already. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You wouldn't have it any other way. You pressured Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You'd rather have a known murderer be released to you than have Jesus Christ be set free. And you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. And that's their story. You delivered, you denied, you killed. And when you're sharing your story with a friend and you're sharing Christ's story with a friend and you're sharing their story with them, what you're telling them is this, it's the same thing that they're hearing is that for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That Christ went to the cross and he went to the cross on his own accord, although you killed him and you called for him to, be, to die. And today when you're sharing with a friend, although your sins put him there, that's your story. It was my sin, although I came after Christ's death and resurrection, Christ died for my sin, for your sin. And when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, you're sharing them the story of Jesus, and you're sharing with them their story, because they might not even know it. They know their circumstances, they know what their life has been like, that's true, and you probably don't. Unless you're close to them, you might. But they need to know Christ, they need to know their story, and what, how their story intertwines with Christ, and it was their sin my sin that put Christ on the cross. Think about saying the same thing today, though. What if Peter said this today? What do you think the crowd's response would be today if you're talking to thousands of people? Sometimes we struggle with the courage to talk to one. <laughs> Peter's talking in a moment, off the cuff, spontaneously to thousands of people, and he says these crazy things to them. Do you know what today's response would be? Let me, let me guess here. It'd be this. Stop judging us. Did you know that you can't say anything to anybody about their life and that's called judgment? Now that's not biblical and that doesn't even make sense according to the definition of judgment. Peter would often say, I'm not judging you, I'm just telling you the facts. I'm not saying you're naughty than you think you are. I'm just telling you the facts. But Peter doesn't stop there. He, you catch a glimpse in chapter, or verse 15 of his story. Did you catch it, verse 15? You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And here's his story. We are, say it, witnesses of this. Here's Jesus. And I walked with him for several years, Peter's saying. And here's what you did. And I was there. And I'm a part of it. I denied him. But me, along with hundreds of others, the scripture tells us, and history tells us, saw him 
come back to life. We saw him. So therefore, we don't worship some, um, some rabbi that died and we're still followers of him. No, we're following the one who is greater than death. You killed him. My sin put him there. But the father raised him to life. And I am a witness of that. So what Peter's doing is sharing all three of these stories in one. And that's what you do when you're sharing with a friend. You testify. You testify to Christ's power in your life. You're a witness. He knew that what Jesus said and what Jesus did were true. 500 witnesses, I believe, saw Christ raised. We take less um, proof for much less things. Let's ask this question then. So Peter's in front of this crowd. He's just healed this man this, by, the, by faith. Christ healed this man. And there's thousands of people watching and he takes advantage. He sees us the moment because he's still following the spirit. He recognizes the need and he wants to make a difference as does John. And he boldly proclaims the gospel by saying who Jesus is, by saying what they did in their story and by saying his story. Let's ask the question then. What gives someone the courage to share their story? What gives someone the boldness? Do you have a friend that you sometimes wish that they wouldn't be so bold about Jesus because it makes you uncomfortable? They're probably a good friend. You don't like the way they do it. It's a little too brash. Peter's style is pretty intense. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to know the answer? Do you know, want to know what gives someone the courage to be so bold about their faith? Maybe that friend that you have that's just overzealous with the gospel. The answer is this. It's their trust in God. trust it's a trust that my testimony of christ is true see we we might not share our faith with somebody like peter was so bold to share it because we're not sure what's going to happen or we're not sure if we have all the answers or we're not quite convinced yet that jesus really is who he says he is and we're only like halfway in there we think which is not really a faith at all trust is a significant part of finding that boldness to share the gospel. I trust that your greatest need is to know Christ. I trust that if I don't share with you, there's great loss. I trust that my love for you is sincere enough to love you enough to tell you the truth. I trust that Jesus says who he says he is. And I trust that the consequences of you not knowing Christ are dire. And I trust that I want you to be where I am going to be after this life. See, someone who's got this, we might call it a crazy boldness. Really, it's probably just a love. They love someone enough to tell them. And Peter's loving these strangers enough, which was just like Jesus, wasn't it? To tell them the truth, even the hard stuff. I don't know if Peter's much of a feeling guy. John might have been. But he's just putting it out there. And so can you. If you're in Christ, you can do this with a boldness, and your boldness is simply doing this, testify to what Christ has done in your life. No one can debate that. You own that. You own your story of God's faithfulness in your life. There's power in story, isn't there? See, being witnesses is telling your story of Christ's work in your life, and telling your story makes a difference. I mean, we're in a movie theater, and every day this movie theater plays shows. Why do people pay money to see these stories? Because stories have an impact some greater than others. Some movies are better than others, aren't they? Here's something about me, if you don't know me very well. Whatever the director wants the audience to feel, I feel that. And I get angry that they can manipulate how I feel. 
If someone's wrongly persecuted or wrongly, uh, their life is taken and it's wrong, I get worked up. And if there's great loss in a film, I get worked up. Last night, maybe for some this would be controversial, but I think I can share in confidence. Last night on TV was a show, um, Schindler's List, a movie uh, depicting uh, one man's work in trying to save people during the Holocaust. Um, And at the end, he says he wishes he could save one more. It's real now. And what the director's doing is trying to have us feel the same, have us feel for him. And guess what? They beat me. I'm not that mentally strong, I guess. But sharing our stories makes a difference. People pay money to see a story. But guess what? Some stories are more powerful than others. Some stories have no power at all. And we see this in our church. We see this in our church at Celebrate Recovery. Jim Henry gets up and shares a story, shares his story uh, of loss and pain and hurt and abuse and abusing. And then how Christ, but Christ, who is faithful and just, forgave him. And guess what? People want to know what he's got. And when he's asked, what do you have? He simply says, Jesus. And it's your story too. Your story has power. I don't know why, and we'll get to this in a moment, because you've got Jesus, and Jesus has power. And the promise was that you will have power. Power will come upon you to be witnesses. And that's exactly what's happening right here. I don't think the point is the healing. It's very important. And by meeting real needs, we can meet ultimate needs, I believe. That's Jesus through us, Will. There's always a so that with him. What if Peter would have said this? I can see there's a crowd here. You want to know how this guy was healed. Well, this is what I did. Or what if you would have just, shh, come on, let's get out of here. I don't like this. Cover some other. Shh. It would have lost the point. Someone asks you, why are you so happy today? Seize the moment. Oh, because of Jesus? How did you forgive your husband again? Seize the moment. It's because of Jesus. Why do you, why do you live so benevolently toward others? Why do you open the, your home the way that you do? Why do you pull the neighborhood together to, to give gifts away to those that are in need? Oh, it's, it's because of Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I can never do enough. I can never repay him enough, so I just want others to know him as I know him. I'm trying to get to know him more. I think this is a model in a sense. I mean, we're following Peter as Peter followed Christ, so Christ is ultimately our model. What we see here is taking advantage of an opportunity through the same, same lens here. He's noticing a need, he wants to make a difference, and he takes advantage instead of saying, let's get out of here, healed guy. Did he have a name? Stories make a difference. Stories move people, and some stories are more powerful than others, and if you've got Christ, you've got a powerful story. Let's look at the next verse. This is actually the explanation of the miracle. <laughs> verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, the man whom you see and know is made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. There's no debating that this guy's healed. No one's going to refute that. I think he's faking it. No. No. What we see here is the actual explanation of how the man was healed. And what's the answer, loved ones? Did you see it in the scripture? The answer is this. How was this man healed? Answer, by the name of Jesus. By the power in the name of Jesus. That language just seems kind of churchy, doesn't it? 
How can a name have power? Well, we know this in Scripture, that names have meaning, and names relay something about people, and it's actually still true today. Let me say some names or some versions of names, and you think to yourself, what this conjures up in your mind, okay? Maybe you can even close your eyes during this exercise if you'd like. I'll say a name, and you think about emotion. Don't say anything out loud. Ready? Mother. Father. Abraham Lincoln. Hitler. Osama bin Laden. Coach Mike Krzyzewski. Okay. Names have meaning, don't they? Was your name ever called and it had one meaning over another? Was your full name ever shouted out to you? Jason Richard Dovey. There was something in that that was different than, hey, honey. The question we could ask then of Peter, if we were with Peter, was saying, we could say, how could the name of Jesus then have such power to heal someone? What, what do you mean? What do you mean that a name has power? And the answers are in the scriptures. So thankful. In verses 13 through 15, it answers the question. By the power is by virtue of his glorification, we see in verse 13, and his resurrection in verse 15. Because Christ is raised, when we hear his name, we hear of a risen Savior, and our faith in Christ, which is really who he is, Jesus, his name, that faith God uses and gives power. Have you heard this scripture before? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and Scott will probably preach this to us in a few weeks. Let me read it for you. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, if Jesus is a common name, was it all the Jesuses that had power? No, we're talking about Jesus Christ. This is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. It's he that is. He, who he is is the way. And who he is is his name. His name represents all that he is. And there's no way to heaven. There's no way to the Father except through him. And someone might say, stop judging, which wouldn't even make sense, would it? Why is Jesus so narrow? And Jesus would say, that's exactly it, actually. Narrow is the way. That leads to life. And broad is the road that leads to destruction where many are on. But then Jesus does this with a love and a concern because Jesus himself notices the needs around him and seeks to make a difference. And so do his disciples and his disciples forevermore, me and you. There is power in the name of Jesus. This reminds me of a, a song. When I was growing up in church, we had hymns and choruses. Even if the choruses had verses, they called them choruses. We had no new songs like this. We just had the same songs. And when I was in Awana growing up, which is a children's ministry program that some churches had, that's where I came to know Christ. The commander of Awana, with these crazy titles, commander. I didn't know who the admiral was, but the commander was Mr. Perrault, and he had a song that he loved, and we sang it every time that he led singing. In fact, when he'd come up to lead singing, I remember this in fifth grade, I could always guess what his song would be. And it's related to the name of Jesus, and it found its way in my heart. Do songs do that sometimes? There's always a song on our tongue, isn't there? Sometimes edifying and sometimes not. This is the song. If you know it, would you sing with me? I'll try my best, but I think it'd be worth, a, worth our while. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, 
Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms will all pass away but there's something about that name different right than saying coach k huh why because there's power behind his testimony and what is christ's testimony that he loves you and he died and rose again for your sake so that all who believe in him and call upon the name of the Lord, which is Jesus, will be saved. The name of Jesus stands for the reality of Jesus. His name stands for who he is. So when Peter says in verse 6, as we learned last week, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, he meant, I am speaking the words, but Jesus is now healing you. When I speak his name with the faith that he has now given me for your healing, he is acting, not me. I'm obeying. And this is the same power that is the power unto salvation, which I think is significantly more significant to be redundant than simply healing. Because eternity, eternity is changed. So when we witness to make a difference, the difference-making power is the work of God's Spirit in someone's life through the work of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. I think this is very pastoral of him to say. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Nothing happened outside the plan of God. In fact, Jesus says no one takes him. He gives up his life willingly. 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter is saying to them, now, all the things you did, you denied, you disowned, you called for the murder of this one who is the Messiah. I know that you acted in ignorance. I think we live in a time where people act in arrogance, but people act arrogantly in their ignorance, too. However, we know this, that by what Peter's saying here is that their ignorance is not an excuse. Someone's saying, you know, I never knew the name of Jesus. How can I be held accountable? And the answer is, we see this in Scripture, that man is accountable to know God. Romans chapter 1 says this, his invisible qualities are seen so that he himself would know that he's not God and there must be a creator. And that creator is, is Jesus. And Peter's saying to them, you didn't understand what you're doing. And doesn't that sound similar to what Jesus said as he is dying on the cross? Do you remember this, loved ones? What does he say to them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, or they know not what they do. It's the same thing that Peter's saying. Father, they're acting in ignorance. And we are ignorant. Sometimes we really get upset with God as if we know things better than him. And sometimes we're looking for someone else to save us versus the Savior. That's ignorance. And we are ignorant people. We don't have the mind of the Lord, do we? So Peter, in a sense, saying, I would, my worry would be if I received these, this terrible news from Peter, I would feel totally dismayed as if there's no hope. And there are people that like that, saying, I'm too bad for God. 
I'm too bad for him to reach me. And Peter says, no, I know, I know you acted in ignorance. But guess what? God was working the whole time. Jesus was sent to die. It wasn't a surprise. You'd notice that Jesus didn't fight you, did he? Oh, I guess we didn't realize that. Peter is saying, even though you acted this way, God was carrying out his redemptive plan all along. And now I give an invitation to you, he's saying. He says to repent. And when you're sharing your faith with someone, you're sharing the story of Christ, you're sharing your testimony of Christ, you're sharing their story with them, their great need of Christ. And then there's an invitation usually. And the invitation is this, would you follow Jesus? Would you repent and would you turn to him? Repentance moves one to stop banking hope for, for happiness on achievements and the pleasures of sin and to turn to Christ and to bank one's own hope now on his promises. The promise of him being with us, his presence being with us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. The promise of heaven, of course, someday. Peter's basically saying, stop following yourself and start following Christ. Who is the Savior? So witnessing is always an invitation to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. It's not an invitation to simply stop behavior. And let's be mindful of that. Because let's say you have someone in your life that you don't like how they act or live or how they conduct themselves in their home. And you want that to stop because you know that what they're doing is wrong. Let's say you convince them and guilt them to stop doing that thing, but they don't know who Jesus is. They're still going to hell. And nothing was gained. Does that make sense, loved ones? And so the invitation is always the invitation to turn to Christ, not from one behavior to another, but to turn from Christ, which is actually turning from one life to another. This is why we say the phrase, I am born again. Yeah. And let's ask this question then. So, Peter, Jason, you're telling me that you're inviting me to turn from Christ. What is really the incentive to turn? I mean, Christians look just as miserable as anybody else they could say. Jason, you don't smile very much. Well, my face kind of hangs heavy because I got fatty cheeks. So. Here's the incentive. Repent and turn to Christ so that, and the text tells us the answer, did you see it? That your sins may be wiped out. That's the incentive. Because if sins aren't wiped out, what we're saying is, Jesus, I'm not going to accept your payment of my sin. I'll try to pay it my own way and try my own way, and you'll always be in loss. It'll never be clean. And guess who goes to heaven? Sinners who have been made clean. Not perfect people, and those that think they're perfect or righteous. Sinners do go, that's true. But those that have been washed, washed by Christ, and the other incentive is so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. People debate about what this is, if it's really now the Spirit comes into someone's life when they turn to Christ, or about the end times. I would go with all of it then. This is why that phrase in that song, Jesus, there's something about that name, like the fragrance after the rain. I don't know if that smell is that awesome. Maybe you nature lovers like it. I think it's the idea of you catch the sense of when you've got Jesus in your life that it's done, it's clean. You're going to heaven. And that's a peace. That peace is like after rain has just fallen. 
That's the incentive. The incentive to repentance isn't so you can become like my church friends and make sure you go to a meeting every Sunday. That's not very pleasing all the time, is it? The incentive is that you would have your sins wiped and that you would know the refreshing that comes from Christ. Let's look at the last few verses as we wrap up. Verse 20. Peter does something really special here, I think, by inspiration of the Spirit, and he continues in his pleading. Um, Verse 20. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Talking about reaching those that were um, in the temple here. Talking about those first to Jerusalem, first to the Jews. And that he may send Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses, and that would have been a name that would have triggered something for these hearers. They were very committed to Moses and his teaching. So Peter's now using what little faith they do have of the past to showcase that this is about Jesus. A great apologetic. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And Peter's saying that person is Jesus. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. That's a warning. And when we witness, there is a warning, isn't there? You're not judging by giving the warning. You're loving by giving the warning. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, they would have known that name and trusted in that name and the writings of that name. As many have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, and that's another name that would have meant something to them. Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Then when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Turning from one way of life, from one life to another. Peter cites the very prophets that the crowd themselves would know and believe. That's what's so strategic and so good. That Peter knows them. He knows where they're coming from. And he uses their belief to lead them to Christ. He's making a case of why Jesus is the promised one and why repentance and faith in him is what is necessary. So the citing of the prophets claims, it welcomes these people to know that God doesn't merely just know history like he's seen the end of the movie already and can tell someone. He's making history. He inspires the prophets to make their prophecies. And how can a man or a woman just say something that ought to be if it's the Spirit going through? That's how. And they are coming true over and over again, hundreds of them coming true. And Peter is leading them through their own beliefs to see that Jesus is the one. Don't miss him. Don't look for another. No one's coming, no one's coming after him to save you. And so Peter's saying, God makes history. He creates history. So all the days from the beginning till now to the coming of Christ through his earthly life, through his death and his resurrection, his death for you, all these days unto eternity, all of these days have been planned and are being worked out by the Lord. And he could say to them, don't you know that and believe that? And they would say, yes. They'd have to say yes. But it's will they say yes to Christ or will they look for another? 
And this is the same thing that we're facing in 2013, even though you're not in a crowd in a temple that might have Jewish custom or believe the Old Testament law. People are looking for a savior. And sometimes it's their spouse. Sometimes it's their bank account. Sometimes it's their identity and their job. So you can speak to that. You will never be saved without a true savior. And there is hope. You've been looking for a hope, Peter is saying, and that hope has now come. And it's Jesus Christ. So essentially what he says to them is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Now what are you going to do? And that happens in our witness to our friends and our strangers that we're coming to become friends with. What are you going to do with him? In verse 23, Peter gives a strong warning, and you saw it, that those that reject him are cut off from him. Jesus says the same thing. There's a popular teaching these days that says that since God loves everyone, everyone's heaven bound. They might use a passage like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus himself says that people will be cut off. Jesus himself says there's two roads. And that wide road and that narrow road both don't come together in the end. And when you tell someone that, you're loving them. You're not judging them. God will judge them. You're telling them, you're vision casting for them of what will be based on what you've come to know and realize in your own life of what would have been for you. Isn't that love? So 23, he gives a warning, but in 26, he gives a promised blessing that to turn from weakness and turning to Christ is the blessing. And the ability to do just that is the gift of faith of which God freely gives. They already have some faith that God exists and that he spoke through prophets. They've just not now placed that faith in Christ. It's almost like they're nearly there, isn't it? But nearly there is not there. It was Peter's faith in the power of Jesus Christ that healed the man, and it's God's granted faith in Jesus Christ that leads one to repentance and salvation. The scriptures teach, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And Peter is pleading with this crowd of who he understands so well. He's pleading with them here just to do the same, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will work through the faith that he grants. Faith is the instrument. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the scriptures say. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by good works. No. By behaving well. By believing a God exists. No. No. By faith. And that faith in Acts is always in reference to faith in Christ. He's still doing this today. He's still changing hearts today. And I'm going to steal a little something here from Acts chapter 4. I just want you to know what happens. I have to, I have to say it. <laughs> because it gives us encouragement. Do you know what happens? Do you know how the crowd responds? See, some people don't share their faith because they're afraid of what's going to happen. Well, for Peter and John, we'll see soon here that they go to jail. Which no one's interested in doing. I'm not. I wouldn't do well in jail. You can probably tell. But guess how the crowd responds? Can we just sneak it a little bit? Can we fast forward just a little bit? Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. And the number of men, so just counting the men, not including the women and the children, grew to about 5,000. <laughs> the largest crowd I think I've ever spoken to at one time might have been 3,000. I don't know. Most of which were believers, I guess. And so Peter obeys the Lord. He sees a need. John as well, of course, with him as his teammate. 
They want to make a difference in this world, and the greatest difference they can make is a difference for eternity. And so they boldly proclaim the gospel by sharing the story of Christ, the story of the crowd, and their own story, and an invitation to believe, an invitation to repent, and 2,000 at least more. Now we've got a couple megachurches happening. For those that are against megachurch, I don't know what we're going to say to Peter and John. Awesome, isn't it? How are we doing at responding? How do we at Southbridge do? Are we doing well at responding to salvation? Can we grow in our ability of appraising this? I mean, because these people came to know Christ, then ultimately, I'm guessing, they shared Christ with other people. Is it possible that the person that shared Christ with you was directly influenced ultimately by someone, one of these 2,000 that were added, or 3,000? Is that possible? It's still happening, still happening. This morning, we have the opportunity to participate in an ordinance. An ordinance is something that takes time to remember, commemorate. And Jad's going to come up and play during this time of communion. And communion is for believers. Communion is for people that have professed Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, who believe in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, and have placed, have transferred their trust on themselves as their king or queen to Christ. And so for those that are going to be helping us pass out the elements, please come forward over here. And let me just share this with you. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your, your invitation today is to just do that. And to take this time right now, don't leave today without taking the time around saying, Jesus, I trust in you. I want to give my life to you. I believe that what you did was for me. That's what you should be doing during this time. The scriptures are clear that people that don't know Christ ought not participate in this because they're celebrating something they don't believe in. But also the scriptures are clear that if one of you has something against another believer, if, there, if you're in discord with someone, if there's secret sin in your life, don't participate in this. And I think that's an invitation of grace to not participate. No one's judging you by not participating. No one thinks that you're naughty. No one's looking at you. They're thinking about themselves in Christ. So we want to be bold about that. In fact, the scriptures say this, that anyone who does this in an unworthy manner drinks judgment on themselves. So I would be a bad pastor if I didn't tell you that. And what we're going to do is we're going to pass out both elements, the juice, which represents Christ's blood, and a a little bit of a cracker, which represents Christ's body. And then once everyone has that in hand, I'll lead us through taking these together as a symbol of our unity, okay? So spend some time right now just reflecting on Christ's work in your life.